I'm looking up the road and I see 20 guys spread across the road and they're all like either got broken bikes or pulling mud out of here or prairie grass. I think I should get off my bike and just shoulder it and start walking. And while that wasn't necessarily part of the plan, right? Like we talked about per Mm -hmm. se, because you're going slower and you're slowing down or whatever, it's going to get you through and your bike's going to make it through. And oftentimes like being slow and thoughtful is the fastest way um, Mm -hmm. through stuff like that. Today on Mindful Warrior Radio, we welcome our guest, Yuri Hoswald. Yuri is an absolute icon of the gravel cycling world. As a professional endurance cyclist for Giants Bicycles and the elite athlete and community development manager for Goo Energy Labs, Yuri is also an innovator, storyteller, and mentor to many. He is probably best known for his winning the world's premier gravel bike racing event, Unbound, formerly the Dirty Kanza, in 2015 at the age of 44. Yuri is no stranger to adversity, and he shares with us today the mindset and motivation for facing challenges head on. I am honored and thrilled to share the insight of Yuri Hoswald on today's episode of Mindful Warrior Radio. Yuri, it is such a pleasure to have you on Mindful Warrior Radio today. Thank you so much for your time and your generosity of spirit. My pleasure. I'm really excited to to chat about whatever you want to chat about and share my story and hopefully uh, inspire some folks to, you know, chase their dreams. Awesome. You rock. So um, I'm here in Santa Barbara, California. I woke up early this morning and I went down to the coffee shop to get a cup of coffee. And there's two young ladies behind the counter who were helping me out this morning. And I love when young folks have curiosity. So one of the young ladies said, you know, what do you have going on today? I said, oh, I've got work today. And she asked, what do you do? And so I shared, you know, I work for this small coaching firm and I work with C-suite to do performance and leadership coaching. I said, but I'm actually doing something, you know, also today, I'm I'm recording an episode for Mindful Warrior Radio. I said, I'm uh, interviewing an athlete who is a gravel bike racer and rider. I said, are you guys familiar with that world at all? And they all kind of had their mouths like kind of slightly open, like kind of in awe, like, no, interesting. We don't know anything about that. And I said, you know, I don't either, but we're about to learn today. And um you know, my background is in water polo, which is a low profile sport. If you're outside of the hub of California or even in different parts of California, 99% of the time you're explaining to people what water polo is. And, you know, they're perplexed. How do you get the horses in the pool? I don't understand. (laughs) And you've got to explain there is no horses, you know? Um, And so I would imagine you're not a stranger to painting the picture of what gravel riding is. And for our listeners, I would love for you to do that for us now. Sure, thanks. Uh, that coffee shop wasn't Handlebar Coffee, was it by chance? It sure was, you know it. <laughs> I know the owners, the owners of that shop, uh, Aaron and Kim are yep. former professional cyclists. And I was actually just in there uh, like 10 days ago and was catching up with Kim. So 
No way. She, kind of stand, she doesn't man the counter. She's over on the edge pulling shots, but she used to race professionally um, at the highest level. And her husband, I believe, won a stage of the Giro, which is huge for an American. So uh, one of my favorite cafes. So all you listeners out there, if you ever go to Santa Barbara, yep. make sure you go into Handlebar Coffee and say hello to Aaron. So cool. Ken. What a great way to prepare. I was all in the right energy. <laughs> totally were, because I was just cool. there like 10 days ago. Um, so gravel racing. Um, imagine sort of the crossroads of road racing and mountain biking. Um, so not pavement, but not technical single track per se, which is sort of what people assume when they think about mountain bike racing, but more of like open Midwestern gravel roads. Now there are sort of like, there's like a grading system kind of, of different types of gravel, you know, there's. There's like pea, small gravel, like kitty litter. There's big chunky stuff. There can be sand. Uh, there could be huge washes and ruts and things like that. So sort of the definition of gravel can span a spectrum of different things. But for the most part, gravel racing, um, well, got its start in the Midwest where there are massive grids, hundreds of miles of gravel or dirt roads for, you know, farming communities out there. Yeah. Um, and... As people have gotten tired of issues on the road with motorists and cars, or maybe somebody is a little overwhelmed or afraid of the technical side of mountain biking, gravel in the last 13 or so years has popped up as the fastest growing segment in cycling. Wow. Um, gravel racing distances can be anything from 25 miles to 350 miles. It's sort of <laughs> runs, yeah, it runs, runs the gamut there in terms of distances, but sort of the standard for most races is to have a couple different distances, like a 50, a hundred, a 200. So like they've sort of raised the bar of um, like expectations in terms of like distances. Sure. Um, and it's just, it's seen a tremendous amount of growth in the industry. Like I said, in the last decade or so. You have a whole segment of the cycling industry dedicated to gravel bikes, gravel tires, gravel gear, gravel clothing, mm -hmm. gravel events. Gravel also happens to be um, sort of the segment right now that is embracing DEI and inclusivity yeah. and events are taking steps to be more inclusive, right? To create a bigger tent for all. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been really fun. I accidentally caught the gravel wave in 2013 just by saying yes. And we can talk about the power of saying yes to things. Yes. Um, so that's sort of a, a, a brief description of, of gravel right now. That's perfect. I'm curious about, tell me a little bit about the culture of gravel. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. Um, it's funny because there, if you've done any research around gravel, there's this sort of term that gets bandied about the spirit of gravel. And um, it uh, it gets made fun of in press and stuff like that. But um, the spirit of gravel is all about like challenging yourself and being as self-reliant as possible. Um, many of these events, you know, there's no support out there. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes there are no aid stations. Oftentimes there aren't course markings. So you have to have the course on your computer. Um, 
So, you know, and it's all about celebrating the community too. It was really, really grassroots, much like the origins of mountain biking in the in the mid 70s, late 70s. It was really just a celebration of getting outdoors, being self-reliant, being out there with your friends, pushing your perceived physical limits, whatever that may be. Um, and at the end of the day, like being uh, more excited about just finishing than your placing, you know, not being yeah. so caught up in your performance, but just getting it done and and then having a celebratory beverage possibly with folks yeah. at the end of it to, to um, cheers what you've all accomplished because, you know, there are long days out there um, in the Midwest at times. And, and now gravel is global for sure. It's blown yeah. up and we can get into that. But um, yeah, it's a really, I find it a really inclusive space. Um, and it's been fun, like I said, to sort of stumble into it um, just, you know, about 13 years ago or so. Awesome. Tell me a little bit about what the the grind of gravel is like, because you just you just shared with us these different ranges, anywhere from 50 mile to 350. And for people who are not familiar, I mean, I don't know what that would take on a bike, you know, and we're looking at ranges of 24 hour days or 24 hour races to 25 hours plus. And something wow. tells me you haven't limited yourself just to that as well. <laughs> I would imagine you've done some treks and adventures in your life. So share with me a little bit about the grind of it. And even if you can like take me into as a fellow athlete, the dark places you can go in the training and the push of it. So a little bit of that kind of, what is the grit and the grind that you need in gravel? Yeah. Oh, wow. This is uh, this could take a long time to answer. So I'm going to okay. step back a little bit just to give your listeners a bit of perspective about my background. So I, um, I played lacrosse in college. When I graduated from college, I didn't have any avenues for me to continue playing. I wasn't good enough to play pro like box lacrosse. Um, and I discovered the bike at the age of 24 while teaching at a prep school in Pennsylvania with some friends, some teachers who shared their passion with me, fell in love with mountain biking. So I sort of caught the tail end of the heyday of mountain biking, the Norbis series, which was like the big race series at that time and fell in love with it. Uh, gradually started doing longer and longer events. So, you know, a hundred mile mountain bike race. And then I would do like an eight hour race. And then in 2005, um, a, a dear friend of mine dared me to do a 24 hour solo mountain bike race because that was super popular at that time. Um, I'd never done anything like that, but he had made the observation in our years of riding together that like, as the day got longer, I just seemed to get stronger I'm more of like a diesel engine than a Ferrari. Yes. yes. And, uh, so I was like, okay, buddy, like I'll do the 24, but you have to be my mechanic. So you get to stay up watch me through all of this, help me through it. And um, somehow I won my first 24 hour solo race in 2005 that qualified me to go to world championships that year, which were in Conyers, Georgia. And those who know their Olympic history in 96, that's where they held the first mountain bike Olympics was in Conyers, wow. Georgia. Mm -hmm. So there was a bit of mystique in history as we were racing the course there. Um, and I ended up getting ninth uh, at world championships. And that allowed me to turn pro at the age of 36. Now wow. those three letters didn't change anything in terms of like my working situation. Cause it wasn't like endorsements came rolling in. 
Sure. Um, I still had my day job as an elementary school teacher, and it was just something that I loved doing. So fast forward, like, you know, another six, seven years, and uh, I had the opportunity to, because we, I work for Goo Sports Nutrition. Um, we were working with an event in the Midwest, Kansas, Emporia, Kansas, to be exact, which is sort of the the epicenter of gravel, which at that point, I didn't even didn't even know what gravel was, sure. but we supported this event and it was a 200 mile event. It was like, Ooh, that sounds interesting. I wonder if I could do that. Uh, I went out there and I ended up having a really good day um, in the prairie and got a taste of this new cycling segment that I'd never experienced before wow. and fell in love with it. Like literally was bitten by the gravel bug out yeah. there and so then to to sort of answer your question about the grind of events, I mean, no matter what distance you do, whether it's a, a 50, a 100, a 350, um, one of the, like the most important things is figuring out your fueling strategy, um, right? Like you can have all the fitness in the world, right? You could be that Ferrari or that diesel engine, but if you're not putting gas into it, um, you're not going to move forward. Yeah. So, my biggest piece of advice to folks getting into the scene is to figure out your fueling plan, figure out what products work for you, um, how many calories your body can absorb per hour, things like that. Um, from there, then you can like, you know, sort of knuckle down on doing more specific type of training to help you train for that distance. Mm -hmm. But um, so like the typical grind of gravel, and let me also state that gravel has changed significantly since when I got into it. It has grown oh, and gotten sure. super popular and gotten extremely fast. Yeah. Like crazy fast. Like I can't I can't even touch. So I I I won Unbound in 2015, like arguably the this event we're talking about. Yes. Arguably the biggest gravel event in the United States. Um I can't even come close to like the top 50 anymore because it wow. is just so fast and competitive. Obviously my age plays into that a wee bit, but just, it's a really popular segment right now. So you have a lot of pros focusing on that. The road scene's not super strong right now. So a lot of folks are coming to gravel where they're able to make a living as a professional racer yep. and it's just taking performances through the roof. Um, so gravel races are kind of like, they're like a race of attrition, you know, um, you know, back sort of in my day air quotes, you know, it would start pretty fast and just slowly grind people out of the group. You know, there'd be yes. selections made, flats. I mean, flats and mechanicals are a part of any gravel ride, unfortunately, right. particularly in the Flint Hills, which is where Unbound happens. And um, it lives up to its name of Flint, super sharp, sharp rocks all over the place that eat tires alive. Wow. Um, and so it's 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 a race of attrition. You have to be smart. You have to like meter out the matches that you are doing because you you know depending on what distance you're doing, you need to think about the next few hours. You know how am I feeling? How am I? Do I need to like burn that match to get up to that next group, or will I bring them back later? Um, there's a lot of patience involved in gravel racing. Um, you know, uh, like using your head maybe a little bit more. Um, then your your legs at times. Mother Nature always plays a factor in the Midwest, whether it's heat and wind or gnarly mud or one year they had a tornado come through out there. 
So <laughs> Mother Nature always throws some sort of curveball at you, particularly in the Flint Hills. But when I was doing Unbound, really on a more competitive level, uh, you would find smaller groups of people kind of breaking away and forming groups. But now, most recently in the last few big races, um, they're all at such, the pros are all at such a similar level that a lot of these races are coming down to sprints now, which was kind of unheard of for a while. Wow. Mm -hmm. So they're all racing really tactfully, watching each other. Um, and they're all at such a high, similar level that they're not able to necessarily shake someone unless they have a mechanical. And so most recently, the Big Sugar event, which just happened in Bentonville, Arkansas, which is a burgeoning, like growing, hot, cycling hotspot, big time. It came down to another sprint. Um, wow. And that's like the third or fourth sprint finish for some of the top pros this year. So, um, yeah, it's while it is a race of attrition, like for the top end folks, they're being really tactful and like playing it out to the last finishing shoot and then attacking each other and see um, who's strongest. Um, I mean, gravel racing is super dynamic. There's also, you know, a lot of teamwork involved too. Even if you don't have, you know, a teammate, sure. you find yourself in little like prairie groups out there, you know, battling the wind or the conditions and, mm -hmm. um, you know, in my 13 years of doing it, I've made some lifelong friends because you have that shared experience of, you know, suffering is too harsh of a word, but sometimes you're suffering. Yeah. Um, the shared experience of getting through a really, um, you know, hard effort or something like that and battling the conditions and pace lining for your listeners who maybe don't know, riding behind each other. So you're working less hard than the, than the person right. who's taking the wind and then you take your turn and you know, oftentimes you'll share snacks with somebody's out of food in between aid stations or yep. water. So there's there's a lot of camaraderie too um, that I've found really impactful and powerful. And like I said, I've made some lifelong like familial type friends yes. um, that have led actually to some business opportunities for me out there now as I begin to shift away from being a racer. And mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure what I even call myself these days in terms of like gravel racing. Sure. So I don't know, we can, we can hone in on anything that I spouted there. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you're, you're painting such a beautiful picture of, you know, what that looks like. And you're still, you're, I think you're continuing to land me and what is, you know, what does it look like to be on these insane, they're like adventures. They're not even they're like journeys. They're, you know, they're races, but I mean, there's, there's so many elements. And I think what is emerging for me right now, just to get, a focus in the things that you shared is what would you, what would you identify as one of the most significant examples of discipline in, let's say a race for you, where, what would you highlight as the most, yeah, significant example of discipline? What discipline do you lean on the most when you are in competition? Uh, <laughs> that's probably, uh, morphed and changed a little bit as, as I've slowed and aged. Um, so mm -hmm. maybe early on the discipline, maybe I leaned into would be to, to, to trust my training around certain power zones that my coach and I figured that knew that my diesel engine could run at, at a high efficiency for long periods of time, not super fast. I'm, I'm definitely wasn't fast, but I had the ability to hold good power numbers for long periods of time. 
Um, and so, you know, sticking to that, having the discipline to know that like, if, if I burn too many matches and go beyond that zone, that that's going to come back to haunt me in 50 miles or 25 miles, or maybe around the corner, I'll be done, yeah. you know? So having the discipline to, to follow that, that plan. And that applies to anybody in your audience, you know, knowing what your body is capable of identifying that if you work with a coach or not, um, and then sticking to that plan. Um, as I've, you know, sort of aged out of the front end, but still race a lot. Um, you know, I guess the discipline I would say I lean into a little bit is, is, is trying is sort of like, you know, not, uh, I guess being patient, you know, and, and sitting on using others more than I might have in my earlier days, um, kind of hiding out in the back of the group, saving energy, stuff like that, being a little wily, you know, the coyote kind yep. of <laughs> hanging out back there, make sure I'm taking food in and stuff like that and taking advantage of the terrain when it suits my skill. I'm not a climber. I'm like 190 pounds, which is not a cyclist typical build. Yeah. So, um, but when it's flat and rolly, that's where I can really get you know, the engines going. And so taking advantage, knowing like being disciplined enough to know to wait for those sections or to figure out how I somehow struggle through the climb, knowing that on the backside, the course is going to open up and suit me better. And, and, and knowing that if I get dropped from that group, that that's okay. Cause I might bring them back on the backside, you know, not being overwhelmed by that feeling of getting dropped, which yeah. happens all the time, more than I'd like to say I get dropped. So sure. um, but just being patient, I think patience uh, is a great discipline. Well, and then obviously, like you can, I have this whole thing about P mantras, uh, you know, persistence and perseverance, and all all that stuff comes into play. Yeah, but, um, I think those would be the the examples of of being disciplined out there, um, and and then keeping your cool. You know, I mean, remember like why you're doing this. It's supposed to be fun. Yeah, you know, it's supposed to be fun at the end of the day. And if it, if you're not having fun, if you find yourself miserable, if you're getting cranky with other folks out there, like you need to check yourself. Sure. Uh, this, this is a really, we're, we're blessed to be able to do this, whatever it is. And um, at the end of the day, it needs to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, so I'm really hearing you when you're saying trust your training and the patience, you said, trust your training, patience and keeping your cool and tethering that to, to fun. And I want to talk about joy a little bit in, in times of hard times with you, but um, trusting your training, being patient and keeping your cool. And I would say you got to be patient and keep your cool to trust your training. So I, I would imagine there's times where you're on a threshold where you're getting antsy or like you're, you're getting dropped from a group and you're going like, okay, like I have a plan, but is the plan changing in this moment? And you've got to make decisions under pressure almost. Right. Or you've got to choose to lean in and, and stick to that trust of training or plan, or you've got to choose to say, okay, is this actually time where I pivot with on mile 70 of 250 or my, whatever it may be, you know, the cadence of your races, but Tell, walk me a little bit through the mindset of when you're on that threshold of getting antsy of almost wanting to ditch the trust of the training um, and where you go in your mind to stay on task and be disciplined. Like when, because it's, it's easy to say, oh yeah, I'll just be disciplined. I'll trust my training. But how many of us have been in that moment and going, 
oh, shit, is this enough? You know, yeah, the plan, do it the right. Plan goes out the window in the heat of the battle. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, yeah. Well, I think I benefit from having, you know, you know, almost three decades of cycling under my belt to mm-hmm. tap into some of that wisdom, that patience, that knowledge a wee bit. Not that I always adhere to it. Um, but you know, I mean, the dynamic racing is dynamic. Um, and things are always changing out there and you know you can't be so rigid about your plan that if things in your immediate environment are changing and you're like well I got to stick to this plan that could that could take you down the wrong path for sure so you kind of have to weigh all of those things based upon past experiences based upon you know your plan that you came into the event with which may be about ready to go out the window because something has changed whether it's the weather, whether it's the group you're in, maybe you find yourself by yourself. Like there's so many factors that can affect um, staying, sticking to your plan. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I just try to remember that like you, I have this wealth of experience, knowledge, fitness um, that I'm able to get through most any situation. So I have that confidence. Yep. Um, and, you know, if I go into an event, and know that I have good fitness. Like if I have the opportunity to maybe make a move that wasn't part of the plan, why not? Why yeah. not like go for it and see what happens? You never know. Um, so I don't know if that totally answers your question, but I think, you know, something that listeners could take away was just to don't be so rigidly stuck in your plan that it's maybe hindering your yep. performance when some opportunities arise that you maybe didn't think would be there. You mm-hmm. may find yourself in a group that you never fathomed you could be in because your fitness is out of place. So then you're like, okay, well, I got to rethink my plan here now. I didn't think I could be in this fast group. So because I'm in this fast group, I'm not going to go to the front because if I go to the front, like I'm burning more energy and I'm just barely hanging on now. Right. So I'm going to hide in the back. I'm going to eat. So I have that fuel going in and ride as smart as possible. So it's, it's super dynamic, but um, I think just, you know, realizing that things are constantly changing out there and the more yes. flexible we malleable we can be with our plan and our thinking um the more successful you will be for whatever distance you're doing and at whatever speed so it's so awesome and so true is it's making those decisions under pressure having the courage to say okay are we going for it and and without a doubt you had to probably have quite a few learning moments to obtain this wisdom and experience to kind of know yourself and your threshold. Um, and that wisdom and experience is hard earned, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, I have thousands of prairie miles under my legs for sure and have experienced the Flint Hills in a variety of conditions so, you know, I'm fortunate in that I do have that library of, of experience to, to tap into. And one of the things I love most in my current role in the gravel scene is being able to share that with people. Yes. And, you know, much like when I was a school teacher, I taught for second and third grade for 12 years, you know, giving, arming the kids with tools, right, that they can use and figure out how to use. So arming, you know, gravel riders or cyclists with some knowledge that hopefully allows them to have their best personal, right, performance, right? Because we all can't be A students. I surely was not an A student. 
Um, even though I probably had all the tools that could have made me an A student, I wasn't an A student. So, um, but we can always do like our personal best, right? When yeah. we tell the line. Um, and so those are the things I, I kind of lean into now. Um, I coach at a lot of camps and stuff like that. So it's really fun for me to like give back in yes. that way now. Yeah. I totally, I'm, that resonates with me as well. And in, in my sport, um, let me ask you about this because as I'm, you know, continuing to learn about gravel through this interview and through the research I did prior to this, um, it seems to me that you, you have control over your preparation with yourself as the athlete. And like you said, you, you've, you are in control of how you train, how you rest and recover, how you hydrate, how you fuel, how you prep kind of going into some of these environments that you'll be racing in. I would add how well your gear is prepared to your bike, right? That's a whole so, other component. Yep. For sure. And so like, that's the next thing you would have control over is like, what is your gear? What do you have for backup? What, you know, I, however you put that gear, you have the athlete that you prepare, then you have the gear that you prepare. And then as you have spoken about, then you have the weather yes. and the terrain, which is out of your control completely. I think about rolling up to a water polo game or tournament. And it's like, it's this, it's a, it's a pool. That's about generally the same temp, give or take a few degrees. You're going to have a standard, you know, course setup. <clears throat> the pool is regulation size. You know, there's not even the, the gnarliest thing that could happen to us is some chick rips your bathing suit off. You got to jump out. You got to put on a new one and you get back at it. Right. Like, you know, and maybe there's some sun, maybe there's, you know, rain, depending if we're outside, but like, honestly, rain doesn't do much for a bunch of women in a pool, like, okay, <laughs> more water. We're not worried about it. Right. So, um, but I think about what you're doing and what you go up against and, and I would imagine there's this kind of attunement or even intuition of, of being like the weatherman. I think about surfers reading the waves and the angles and the ocean. And there's so much of that alive in your sport. Yeah. And I would imagine you've either got to flow with mother nature or you've got to submit to mother nature, or you got to like kind of have a come to Jesus conversation with mother nature on some of these rides. Tell me a little bit about how you communicate and mm. work with um, and flow with mother nature in your sport. Uh, that's a really awesome question. Uh, yeah. So, you know, obviously, as we've already said a couple of times, weather's always a factor out in the Midwest and for many of the big gravel events. Um, so watching what the weather is going to do. So knowing ahead of time or hoping, you know, ahead of time so you can pack the proper gear, you know, maybe you're packing extra tubes or uh, an extra. Well, so the funny piece of gear that people often question is like a mud stick. So think of a painter stick, you know, that stirs the paint. So the mud sticks are used to get the mud off of your wheels and bike frame because it plugs your bike up and then it won't roll anymore. So having a mud stick handy so you can clear those spots so your bike can continue rolling is, is key. So looking at the weather, preparing in that way, having maybe extra flat fixing stuff, whatever it might be, just so you have the tools necessary to deal with some things that Mother Nature might um, throw at you. And then 
yes, when you find yourself in a gnarly headwind or you find yourself in a miserable, you know, prairie peanut butter mud pit that wow. stretches for miles, um, realizing that, you know, picking up your bike and walking is the best way to get through that. And mm -hmm. that um, trying to ride it is probably going to lead to mechanical disaster. Um, and this comes from like many years of experience out there. Um, you know, the year I won Unbound, it was the gnarliest mud they've ever had in the event's history. And, you know, all said and done, probably walked and ran close to seven to 10 miles. Wow. And during that 200 mile event, but it was having, you know, the composure and the confidence to know like, all right, I'm looking up the road and I see 20 guys spread across the road and they're all like either got broken bikes or pulling mud out of here or prairie grass. I think I should get off my bike and just shoulder it and start walking. And while that wasn't necessarily part of the plan, right? Like we talked about mm -hmm. per se, because you're going slower and you're slowing down or whatever, it's going to get you through and yeah. your bike's going to make it through. And oftentimes like being slow and thoughtful is the fastest way through stuff like that um, because everybody else out there is having to deal with it. And as you well know, it's like, it's how we respond to adversity yes. that really defines us and can um, allow us to have amazing breakthrough performances, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, just taking a deep breath. It's okay to have that, you know, this sucks moment but let it go, have it, and like have a little bit of a prairie tantrum. I've had plenty of them out there. A prairie um, tantrum, that's yeah, so good. Sure. <laughs> Definitely, I will admit, I've had a few prairie tantrums. I had one this past year at Unbound because the same mud pit that crippled the field in 2015 was there again. And it had a very similar effect on the field. Um, and when we rolled into it, I was like, well, looks like I'm walking for a while. Yep. And uh, it was, I, I did have sort of that really frustrating moment rolling into it because you could see it for a ways. It was like, here we go again. Yep. Um, but having that prior experience and that knowledge and then just being patient enough with those situations allowed me to get through. And I had one of my better performances, you know? Um, so yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's just trying to um, do the best with whatever situation you have there. And, you know, um, Brad Stolberg, I'm not if you're sure if you're familiar with his books, highly recommend. Um, he has a book called uh, The Practice of Groundedness. And then he just released a, a new book called um, The Master of Change, which I just listened to. But he has the four P's, which are like pause, I think, ponder, plan and then proceed something along those lines uh -huh. so when it, when you hit that you know that 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 patch of prairie mud you pause you yeah. can have a tantrum but then you you figure out like you let that go and then you figure out what your next steps are going to be and you you hopefully you know ponder what your plan what your path forward is and you make that happen and then you start moving forward and um because if you just get so overwhelmed by the conditions and get frustrated and get in your head. That's going to like, you know, ruin your day, possibly mechanical yourself out of the event completely, which is horrible. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pretty proud to say that there are very few races in my long career that I have not finished. You know what I mean? Like yes. whether it's me walking across the finish line with flat tires or something like that, like 
I like to finish what I started and whether that's at the front end or the back end, right? You want to, you want to get it done. And so oftentimes we have to throw that plan out the window, have to take a deep breath, take that pause, have the tantrum, figure out the next steps, keep moving forward. And you're going to be super proud of yourself when you get through those conditions. Um, so anyway, I'll stop. Yeah, talking no, that's, it, that's awesome. Yuri. I I'm loving, I'm loving all of this insight. Um, I, I'm listening to you talk about, you know, picking your bike up, walking it across the finish line, flat tire. I mean, there's all of these different challenges and uh, elements that can happen throughout a 250 mile race. Um, and, you know, oftentimes I've received questions that are like, what what, like, what makes you do what you do? Right. And I think for me as an athlete, my, my simple answer and very much a part of my truth was, you know, I show up because I have teammates, right. And like, they, they're what, they are what keeps me going. They're what makes me show up on the edge of the pool to train six and a half hours a day, six days a week, you know, for 13 years. And I think that was an easy interview answer for me to say. And I think the easiest for people to resonate and understand. But as I often look back during that time of intense training, when I was really in the thick of my career, like there was some sort of crazy in me that made me want to show up and go through the challenge of training for the Olympics three, not once, but three times in a row and to be pummeled by training and to wrestle a giant Hungarian woman and have my suit wrapped around my neck and, you know, get the crap beat out of me essentially. And I loved it. And I was like, it felt real. It was like, it was so purposeful and it was meaningful to me. And I, I almost still search for the reason why, like, why, what drove me, what kept me showing up to the crazy town and no doubt Yuri, what you're doing is crazy town. Like it's not normal what you guys do in gravel to the point where you're like, I'm going to walk through snow, you know, with my bike over my shoulder. And I'm going to say, this is great. We did it. I'm grateful. You know, thank you, Prairie. Amen. Like, (laughs) you know, that's nuts. But I think, you know, and I think some people, have spirituality. Some people dedicate certain things to certain people, but at the end of the day, you are the one doing it. No one can get into Yuri's body and drive it up any sort of mountain in any sort of condition, except for you. Of course, we have crazy support, um, and people around us to make things happen, but what drives you? What is the crazy tick in your brain? And again, I have struggled to find the true answer. Maybe that emerges for myself and maybe you've come to one or you're still learning yours. Uh, man, that's a, that's a great, like difficult, complex question. I think, you know, we obviously share some commonality in some of the things that drive us for sure. And I would like to just start by saying, I don't think there's anything like special or unique about me and my why or plural wise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll step back and say like, you know, I've, always been an athlete. I was never a gifted athlete, but I played soccer, baseball. When I went to Robert Louis Stevenson, it was, I discovered lacrosse. I'd never played it before that became my sport. And then it was lacrosse, baseball, football there. College was lacrosse. So sports have always been a part of my life. And 
I think a lot of it came from the team aspect, like you spoke of, right? You know, wanting to honor your teammates, your community, your family, the camaraderie there that comes out of tra hard training days in the pool, things like that, you know, share the shared suffering, the shared elation, the shared sadness, all of that is really enticing and powerful. And as part of my why, I would say, even though, you know, cycling is not seen as a team sport, um, you know, I do feel like I have a community of folks around me and have for decades that have helped support me. And, you know, on some level, you don't, you know, I don't want to let them down. Um, not that I'm competing for them, but they're, you know, mechanics, my wife, sponsors, things like that. You know, you want to, um, you want to like live up to your own personal expectations, but maybe any expectations they may have of you or hopes for you. I would also say in terms of my why, like, and maybe there's something wrong with me and maybe this gets to the crazy. Yeah. I've always enjoyed pushing my physical limits. I've always you know, and I guess like if I had to put my finger on something, I get, and I don't understand the chemistry of it, but like, right, the endorphins, right, mm -hmm. that are the chemicals that are triggered in our bodies, in our brains, um, when we go into those states, because there's various states that you can go through when you're pushing yourself physically. But um, I guess I've always found some sort of pleasure, joy um, from doing that physically. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, also part of this question of why, particularly um, later in my cycling career and doing these long distance events, when you are just, you know, that you have a lot of me time, oftentimes you're by yourself for hours, yeah. hundreds of miles. Um, and I have, you know, a well of like emotional uh pain or inspiration that I tap into when I start to feel sorry for myself or, mm -hmm. you know, like, oh, I can't do this. And that comes from my father who passed from cancer 17 years ago and had an extremely rough go with it, watched him die. Mm -hmm. uh, and he was my biggest fan. And he never got to see me turn pro on the bike, but he loved it that I was getting my ass kicked all the time as I was yeah. coming up through the ranks because um, he just thought it was, you know, part of the process, pretty funny. Um, and so I try to honor his spirit when I'm out there and I think about him. I've had, you know, early in my 24 hour solo racing days, countless moments where you just start crying at like two or three in the morning, you're out there and I have tattoos on my arms to remind me of my dad when I'm riding, mm -hmm. um, you know, tap into, there's something really powerful about that emotional energy that I find motivating. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, more recently, I guess the last 11 or so years, you know, my wife is a stage four cancer survivor mm -hmm. um, and was given a 10% chance to live. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, and she has been my biggest support person throughout my whole racing career. And so, you know, any, Anytime I feel bad for myself, I tap into what I've seen her deal with, the pain, the suffering, the setbacks, stuff like that. And it really makes what I'm feeling like trivial, insignificant. It's like, it's right. kind of like a smack in the face, right? Like, come on, Yuri. Like, yeah. this is nothing. Um, so those are some of the things, I guess, that could be my why. You know, I also keep showing up because of the community, the camaraderie, the family aspect of racing. 
Um, and some of that is due to the fact that, you know, I'm an elder statesman, I guess, now of sorts, and I've been doing this a long time and have a lot of friends and family in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and so I enjoy, you know, the, the, the family reunions that happen around events and the fact that I work with athletes, um, I have a deeper relationship with them, um, you know, for better or worse. Uh, you know, I consider them family too, and I probably get too close to my athletes. So when you have to have hard conversations, it's not that fun. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So there's a, I think there's layers to my why. Um, but yeah, but I think at the root of it, I've always been like hardwired to enjoy pushing my limits, not in some like twisted, sick way. Some people might think it is, or because I was athletically gifted because I'm not, yeah. I just yeah. have a good work ethic. Um, and I'm not afraid to train hard and put in the time that it takes mm -hmm. to race 200 miles or 350 miles or whatever it is. Um, so anyway, that's my yeah. long winded why answer. But it, it is that complex, right? And it can be, there can be that many layers and there's depth into it. There has to be, if you're choosing yeah. to show up and do what you're doing on a daily and signing yourself up for it. And I think, you know, early on, you were talking about how your friend dared you to do a 24 hour solo. And I was like, yep, this guy's got a serious curiosity of what he, what his full potential could be. And I've even, you know, I've even thought my own personal fear is, you know, not getting the most out of myself. What a yeah. waste, right? Like, and so I imagine there's a little bit of, yeah, tell me what's coming up for you. Well, that really resonates because, um, and this applies to everybody that's listening right now, is we always sell ourselves short in terms of what we think we're capable of. We are our own worst enemies, right? When you're having a bad day, you start talking to yourself in your head in horrible ways and beating yourself up. And things that you would never say out loud to a friend, but you're saying them to yourself. Absolutely. And we also underestimate what's possible. And I, and I use this line a lot, but I've enjoyed like redrawing that line in the sand of what's physically possible for me, particularly, you know, since I became pro at a very late age, when a lot of people are stepping out of the scene, you know, when I turned pro at yes. 36, most folks are hanging it up. Mm -hmm. And then when I won Unbound at 44, like that's unheard of. And, you know, I mean, yeah. now like 44, you're I, like I said, I'm not even close to the top 50 at all. So like, it's a completely different beast. So it's not apples to apples anymore. But um, I, yeah, just like redrawing the line of yeah. what is possible for you. And we can all do that. No matter if you want to do a, a 50 mile ride, a 250 mile ride, like if you put in the work, you figure out a plan, nutrition, training, gear, all of that. Um, I guarantee you that you will surprise yourself what you're you're capable of for sure. And that is a joy and it's fun to continue to learn new things about yourself in different ways. And I think that has got to be the, the a bit of the addiction to, you know, like, okay, what can we break through today? Even if it's like, I, 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 you know, I chose to put one or two different kind of fuel snacks in my pack, you know, and it's down to the smallest little detail or like the, the, the biggest event that you can complete for the first time that you maybe didn't anticipate that you could. Well, to that point. So just to give some folks a little bit of historical context. So in 28, cause we've talked about this distance a few times and haven't really mentioned what it was, but in 2018 unbound introduced 
an event they called the XL. So that was the 350 mile self-supported yes. event. That year, they only invited 34 people to do it because they weren't sure like if people would want to do it, if people could do it. And I happened to be part of the first invitees. Wow. My knee-jerk reaction was no way. Like I didn't, well, while I thought I was physically capable, I wasn't sure I wanted to go there mentally. mentally. Like all wow. the layers that you have to dig through to ride 350 miles. And I actually texted two of my dear friends who are endurance legends, Rebecca Rush. She's a seven-time world champion. Um, dear friend of mine, athlete I've worked with for years. And then Jay Peterberry, who is a bikepacking endurance legend in the sport. Um, I texted both of them. I was like, I'm assuming you guys got the invite. Like, are you guys doing it? And they both wrote back like, oh yeah, like, are you doing it? And I was like, uh, well, I'm not so sure. And then they kind of heckled me a little bit. I was like, okay. So I bowed to the pressure, but oh, yeah. I'm very glad I did because I surprised myself. You know, I ended up getting second, you know, not that far behind first that year. Wow. And it was a really powerful, wow. amazing experience. My wife was there. She got to witness my finish. She was also at the finish in 2015, which added more fuel to that fire when mm -hmm. I won. But um, it was a crazy experience and mother nature threw everything at us that year. And um, I don't ever need to do it again, but I'm glad that I showed, you know, myself that I, I could get through, through it. Um, and yeah, it was an amazing experience that's, you know, in that library of experiences that I can tap into now of racing. Um, not that we'll ever do a 350 mile race again, um, but yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, you are absolutely no stranger to doing challenging things. And I think, you know, even in the sport of gravel and in life as well, I mean, you, you spoke about, you know, losing your dad to his battle with cancer and supporting your wife, a, a cancer survivor through her yeah. stage four cancer. Um, what, what has kept you tethered to hope and joy during these trying times? Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that, you know, I may not give the answer that uh, I think, well, I'm going to give an answer that's that's real to me is that, you know, um, oftentimes there isn't joy in those situations, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes things just suck and you have to deal with that suck um, and figure out a way through it, much like you know, I've had to deal with, or you've had to deal with agro Hungarians, or I've, I've had to deal with gnarly mud pits or conditions, yeah. whatever. You have to figure out a way through that suck. Um, life is not always joyous. Yeah. Um, but I do think that when you get through that mud pit of suck or whatever you want to call it, that the joy you do find on the other side is possibly more powerful and more meaningful because you did go through that time yep. of, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, unhappiness or, or darkness or whatever. Um, and I think the most important thing in all of that though, like is just continuing to move forward, whether it's baby steps or long strides or whatever, like if you can find little ways to continue moving forward through that suck, like you're eventually going to get through it. Mm -hmm. Most likely. I mean, and I will say that like, obviously 
you know, not everybody makes it through a battle with cancer. My father, yeah. my wife was lucky. She got, she survived and is thriving now. So, but yeah, I do think that on the other side of suck is often um, joy and happiness that we didn't think would be there, but it is there because you kept continued showing up and moving forward, even though it sucked, maybe it was two steps forward, one step back, but you're eventually moving forward. And yeah, so, I mean, I broke my leg last year talking about Gosh. periods of suck and yeah. I was confined to a couch for like 13 weeks because my leg was immobilized. Um, and so, you know, you, when your life is sort of tethered and, and all around a bike and that goes away, yeah. like that was definitely a, um, a mud pit that I had to figure out a way through and keep my sanity and find some sort of joy or meaning in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so life's not always joyous. Everybody I think can identify with that, but I think yeah. if we can find ways to embrace it um, and deal with it in the best way that you can, maybe that's seeking therapy. Maybe that's talking with friends. Maybe that's being out in nature, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like as long as you're taking some positive steps to try to, to deal with it, like you're going to get through it and you'll find that joy and happiness on the other side. It may take some time, um, but it does exist on the other yeah. side. Yeah. I'm hearing so much. And throughout this entire interview, even how you're training, how you get through some of these races, and even in what you just shared with us is that there's a real trust that, um, some of these kind of periods in your life or things that are popping up are like weather patterns. And there's a trust that it's going to move through when there's going to be a break in the wind, there'll be a break in the, in the rain. And I keep hearing that theme over and over again, is that, the shitty feeling or this really intense time or even grief, you know, you've experienced grief on a pretty intimate level of it and having it be like a weather pattern that's, that's moving through. And, you know, if we use the word hope, you know, there's this hope and this trust that there's going to be breaks in the weather or it's going to move through totally. And, you know, I, I, that's a very, um, I mean, that's a powerful mindset and perspective to hold for yourself um, because it allows you to continue to show up and take those baby steps in what you're talking about. Anything coming up for you as I kind of lift that up? Well, I was going to say, circling back to Rebecca Rush, um, you know, she has done some extremely difficult, hard things um, and talks a lot about, you know, during an event, there's highs and there's lows, right? And you have to navigate both because neither are going to, be there that long, but you are going to go through the highs and the lows for sure. And it's figuring out sort of the most steady path through them. That's going to get you through with the most success. Mm -hmm. Some of those periods last longer than others, but you're going to have highs and lows guaranteed, no matter what you're doing. Um, And it's just figuring out how you respond. Like we already have talked about and take those baby steps or move forward knowing, right? Hoping, well, knowing, I think that there's going to be some light on the other side of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about um, the impact that you're making on youth and in the cancer space uh, through you're riding on two wheels. <laughs> Tell me about that. Oh, thanks. Um, so my wife is the ED, the executive director of the NorCal High School League. She's been that for close to 15 years now. 
Um, and for those in your audience that don't know, uh, there are now, oh, I don't know, probably 30 or 40 high school leagues all over the United States under awesome. um, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association umbrella. Um, I, 20 years ago, had a group of kids here in my hometown of Petaluma that were mountain bikers. I was getting into the scene. That league didn't exist yet, but I was a school teacher. So I started a, a junior team. Um, so I've been intimately involved in um, high school cycling for 20 plus years awesome. um, and just get so much joy and return from watching these kids, whether they decide to race or not. It's it's really the life lessons that they learn uh, being part of a team um, and going to these events, whether they're at the front end or the back end. And I've seen it change countless kids' lives. Mm -hmm. um, I work with kids that have come through the league. I've seen kids who were high schoolers who are then world champions, AKA Kate Courtney. Um, you know, so it runs the spectrum. I've seen kids come through the league that I now work with in the industry that are working. So it just having that opportunity, that sport sporting opportunity, not that it's any better or anything than like baseball and those other things. It's just another avenue for kids to pursue yeah. that aren't the typical, you know, stick and ball sport. Yeah. Uh, and it just it it just changes countless lives of the kids and the coaches. Just two weekends ago, I was up in Mendocino for a coaches retreat. There were 70 coaches up there. Wow. And it was basically a way for my wife and her team to like stoke them out, front load, front load some information about the season, cater to them because they're the ones that make the league run, right? Giving right. up time and, and coaching these teams. And it was just, it was rad to ride bikes with coaches for four days. No, no big agenda. Just go out, have fun on the bike mm -hmm. and remind themselves of the joy they get from riding. Right. And know that that's being transferred into the kids. We had a couple of times where some coaches were having some hard, difficult physical moments. And I took the opportunity to be like, Hey, like you got this, but also remember like your kids are feeling this too. So this, this will help inform your coaching when Absolutely. you're practice. And Johnny's like off the back hurting, like you're going to be more compassionate now. And the dude was like, yeah, totally. You know, so like, yeah, so um, awesome. <laughs> yeah it's, it's super fun. And while I just drop in periodically these days to events and, and try to help if I can, maybe course marshal or this or that. And I also work with a lot of the teams with their nutrition. I'll make sure they have goo sports nutrition, or I speak to teams um, over Zoom about fueling and stuff like that. Um, so those are ways that I've helped with the high school league. And then speaking of two wheels and cancer, so there's um, a foundation called the Pavlov Foundation. Hmm. And it was started by a dear friend of mine, Jeff Castellaz, who lost his son Pablo to cancer um, when he was about five and a half. Hmm. And Jeff turned to the bike to process his grief um, and wrote, literally rode across the country from Florida to Los Angeles by wow. himself had some people join him. He had a support vehicle, but had some people join him here and there. And that's how the Pavlov Foundation and the Pavlov ride was born. It was born out of Jeff and his wife, Joanna's grief for their son. That ride has gotten bigger over the years. They have a foundation now. They have a really cool arm of the foundation called Shutterbugs, which uses photography and art 
um, to allow kids who are going through cancer to experience some joy, some creativity, to have a bit of control in their lives that are spiraling out of control because of the disease. They do art shows with these kids. They sell their art to raise money. Um, and so I, my wife and I did the Pavlov ride, I want to say in maybe 2014, you know, you have to raise a certain amount of money to go because you're fully supported, um, which was a huge feat for her being a cancer survivor. Um, it was really powerful to ride almost 600 miles, you know, up the California coast with her. Um, and then I returned for multiple years after that as a ride lead. So ride, you know, ride, pace the different groups and, and help. Um, and, you know, most folks who were on the ride had their lives touched in some way by cancer, either they were a cancer survivor or knew somebody or, um, so it was just a really, um, really a powerful, um, experience. Yeah. And so, uh, I wasn't able to join them this year, but, uh, that is something that my two wheels are able to help. And it's obviously connected to me and my cancer experience, but also, you know, my elementary school teaching days, like it pains me to, to think of six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds or whatever, to, to have to go through something as, as hard as that. One of the years we finished at, um, the children's hospital in Los Angeles, like in their grounds right yeah. there. And you know, many of the kids cannot go outside because they're immunocompromised. Right. And there was a massive glass wall. And I remember we had our, everybody was set up right there as we're finishing and the taking care of kit and stuff. And you could see the kids like just looking out, watching us. And it was just like such a, I mean, it was like the perfect place to end, but it was also really sad and powerful yeah. reminder of why we were doing what we were doing was so hopefully there could be some cures found for what these kids were going, going through, through. Mm -hmm. um so anyway if folks don't know about the pablo foundation check them out really awesome group out of los angeles and check out their shutterbugs program too um it's a really cool program that gives kids cameras to chronicle anything they want to as they are going through their respective cancer journeys and they have camps for them to teach them about cropping and this and that all the photography skills that they might need those are yeah. two things i'm passionate about Thank you for sharing that. And Yuri, it's, it's incredible. I, I think one, finding your gift and, and joy in the sport of gravel and then taking it that next level and using it for good, you know, whether that be what you're doing with Goop Lab and the athletes that you're working with, your mentorship and being a pioneer of the sport of gravel and pushing the sport along. And like you said, it's, when you uh, span a certain amount of time, you watch how quickly the sport changes and grows and develops from equipment to athletes to you name it. Um, and then just your impact in the, in the cancer space and even with youth, um, just what a gift to give back to the world. Um, and so thank you for your leadership. Thank you for sharing your experience and your wisdom and your light. No doubt you are a bright light. And I got to just take that in today. And it was such a joy. So thank you for all of your time and all of your words today. Greatly appreciated. Oh, yeah. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And, you know, if people want to reach out to me, they can hit me on IG. I get messages all the time. I try to respond to everybody. Um, if they have questions about gravel racing or nutrition or gear or I don't know, life maybe. 
Yep. Um, I'm happy to to share any bits of myself and knowledge with them. But um, yeah, thanks for giving me the platform. And I look forward to having this go out into the world and hopefully it, it helps some folks find yes. the light, right? Get through the yes. mud, get through the stuff. Yes, I love it. Thank you so much, Yuri. Thank you to those who joined us today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take the opportunity to share with a friend, follow Mindful Warrior Radio, and leave a review. To learn more about Mindful Warrior and Mindful Warrior Radio, please follow us on Instagram at The Real Mindful Warrior and check out our website at www.mindfulwarrior.com. I look forward to our next discussion here on Mindful Warrior Radio.